The last time I began a series of sermons by Christopher Love regarding prayer, and so this is the second in that series. The text under discussion is Luke chapter 11, verse 8. Turn to that and read it. Luke chapter 11, verse 8. I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. And thus much for the first doctrine and first part of the text, the relation between him that prays and him to whom prayers are made. I come now to the second part, which is the condition upon which the prayer was heard. And and that I told you was set down two ways. First, negatively, and second, positively. Negatively, not because he is his friend. The observation, thence, is this, that a state of friendship or reconciliation with God is not sufficient to assure a man that God will give returns to his prayers. Although a man must be brought into a state of friendship and favor with God before his prayers can be heard, yet it is not a sufficient ground for man to believe that God will give him an answer of all his prayers. He will give unto him not because he is his friend. The text says, so that a godly man may make many prayers and yet God may not give any answer to his prayers. In the handling of this doctrine, I shall do three things. First, I shall show the reasons of the doctrine. Second, I shall show in what cases God may refuse to give his own people the things that they pray for. And third, I shall show how we may know when God denies to hear our prayers, whether the denial be in mercy. The first particular is the reason why God may and doth sometimes deny to hear the prayers of his friends. And that is this, because God hath tied returns of prayer not only to the qualification of the person, but also to the qualification of the duty, that the duty be performed not only by a fit person, but also in a right way, in a right manner, to a right end. God doth not say, let a godly man pray how he will, I will hear his prayers. That were the way to make him to be careless and remiss in the performance of duties. Therefore, the Lord expects qualification of the duty as well as of the person. God requires that duties be done with feeling, fervency, faith, fear, and reverence. They must be done in the right manner. There is a fivefold qualification that God requires, even of his friends, as condition of their acceptance. First, the heart must be prepared. Psalm 10, 17. Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the humble. Thou wilt prepare their heart. Thou wilt cause thine eye, ear to hear. And so Job 11, 13, 14, and 15. If thou prepare thine heart and stretch out thine hand towards him, if iniquity be in thine hand, put it far away and let not wickedness dwell in thy tabernacle. For then shalt thou lift up thy face without spot, 
Yea, thou shalt be steadfast and shalt not fear. This is the first particular. Second, sin must be removed. So you find in the place last quoted, iniquity must be put far away, etc. When God's own people come to worship before God, they must not let any sin lie upon their consciences, unrepented of and indulged. Third, the affections must be raised. David, when he set himself to prayer, he saith, Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Psalm 25.1 You read often in scripture of lifting up a prayer to God. Isaiah 37.4 It may be, The Lord thy God, thy God will hear the words of Rabshakeh, whom the king of Assyria hath sent. Wherefore, lift up thy prayer for the remnant that is left. Jeremiah 7.16 Pray not thou for this people, neither lift up cry nor prayer for them. 1 Timothy 2.8 I will that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Fourth, the mind must be composed in prayer. 1 Corinthians 7.35 We are to attend upon the Lord without distraction. Daniel set his face unto the Lord to seek by prayer and supplications. Daniel 9.3 in the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee, said David, Psalm 5. <clears throat> As an archer, when he shoots an arrow, takes care that his hand shake not, his heart was so fixed on God that he could directly send his prayers unto him. Dost thou think, O man, that God will hear that prayer which thou dost not hear thyself? Will God regard that prayer that thou dost not regard? Will God grant thy request when thou dost not know what thou askest because of that indisposedness and distraction that lies upon thy spirit? You must therefore take care. When you be, betake yourselves to prayer that the devil do not distract and disturb you. Fifth, the desires must be enlarged after God in prayer. Jeremiah 29.13 then you shall seek me and find me when you, shall, when you search for me with all your heart. God bids us open our mouths wide and I will fill them. Psalm 18.10 God hath not promised to fill the heart unless our mouth be opened. Now put all these together. Our prayers will not be heard except first our hearts be prepared. Second, sin removed. Third, our affections raised. Fourth, our minds composed. And fifth, our desires enlarged. And judge whether this be not ground enough for the doctrine that a state of friendship is not sufficient for the acceptance of our prayers. I come now to the second thing, and that is a case of conscience. It is this. In what cases may God refuse to give his people the things they pray for? I answer first, in case you indulge any sin in the heart, Psalm 66:18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear my prayer. Sin which is in thine heart, by thine indulgence and approbation, doth provoke God that he will not give an answer to thy prayers. And second, in case thou dost seek for any mercy from God to be fuel for thy sin and lust. James 4.3, ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. So the mother of Zebedee's children in Matthew 20:21, 20, she said to Christ, Grant that these 
My two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand, the other on thy left in thy kingdom. Now this was an ambitious desire, for she showed that Christ would have reigned upon earth as an earthly king, and she desired that they might be next to him as he sat upon the throne. Therefore Christ said, You know not what you ask. Christ would not give any answer to her request. He would not gratify her pride and ambition. Third, in case God sees we are not able to use the mercy well when we have it. If you would ask gifts from God, it may be God sees that enlarged gifts would make thee proud and that thou wouldest be puffed up with them and exalt thyself above thy brethren. Therefore, God will deny thee. We read in Genesis 26, 1 and 2, when there was a famine in the land, he went to inquire of the Lord whether he should go down into Egypt. God answered, go not down into Egypt. God would not let him go, but in the days of Jacob, there was a famine in the land, Genesis 46, 3, and God said to Jacob, go down into Egypt. Now, what might be the reason that God would have Jacob go down into Egypt and not Isaac? The reason is this, Isaac was a man of weaker graces than Jacob was, and God saw that if Isaac had gone down into Egypt for corn, he would have fallen into the sins of the land. Now Jacob was a strong man in grace and in gifts, for as a prince he wrestled with God and prevailed and was called Israel. God saw that Jacob would resist their idolatrous ways and not be guilty of their sins. So you may ask mercies of God, and it may be, You are not able to manage them well, and therefore God denies you when as another asks the same mercy, and God gives it to him, because he sees he will use it well and improve it to God's glory. Therefore reflect upon thyself, and when God denies thee a mercy which thou hast begged at his hands, say to thyself, this denial is in mercy, for he did not think me fit for it. If men would take this way to consider of God's dealing with them, it would silence all the murmurings and repinings of their hearts against God. Fourth, if you pray but cursorily and carelessly, then God may deny you. He that prays coldly doth, as it were, entreat God to give him a denial. God promises to be found if we seek him with our whole heart. But if we be careless and regardless of ourselves, how can we expect that God should regard us? So much for answer to that question. In what cases God may deny his people's prayers? This is the second thing. The third particular is another case of conscience, and it is this. Seeing God doth not hear the prayers of his people in some cases, how may we know whether the denial of our prayers be in mercy or no? God doth not hear the prayers of wicked men. He denies them in wrath, but his people's prayers he denies in mercy. And that is in these cases. First, this is a mercy in case any of his people ask anything that is sinful in itself. God denies that to his people in mercy, which he gives to others in wrath. God will not always give to his people what they pray for, but what is best for them. If God should give his people all they ask, they would be undone. It is mercy to to deny a madman a sword, for he would cut his own throat with it. To deny a child a knife, 
for he would cut his fingers with it. You have an instance in Peter. Luke 5, verse 8. When Simon Peter saw him, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Had Jesus Christ granted Peter his request, he had been undone forever. Therefore, he would not depart from him. So that this denial was in mercy. As on the other side, it it is a demonstration of God's wrath many times when God doth grant mercies to wicked men. So it was to Pharaoh. He desired that God would remove the plagues from him. God granted it, thereby to harden Pharaoh's heart and make him ripe for destruction. Second, God denies in mercy. If that we ask would be an occasion of sin. Suppose a man beg wealth. God sees the having of wealth would make him a proud man. Now the denial of that is a mercy to him. As in the the aforementioned instance, God would not let Isaac go down to Egypt because it would have been an occasion of sin to him. As he said very well, God denies that in love which he grants in anger. God doth not hear many in their desires that he may hear them for their good. Third, God denies a prayer in mercy when he gives a better in lieu of it. It was the desire of Moses that he might go into the land of Canaan, but it was better to him to go to the heavenly Canaan, and therefore God translated him thither. So the apostles desired Christ to tell them when he would restore the kingdom to Israel. He would not resolve them that, yet he gave them a greater mercy, for he gave them the Holy Ghost. So David desired the life of that child, which was illegitimate, But God took away the bastard, which would have been a living monument of David's folly, and gave him a Solomon. God will either give us what we ask, saith Bernard, or what he knows to be better for us. Fourth, God may deny to return his request in mercy, to quicken our hearts and affections in prayer, and to make us more eager in the pursuit after mercy. God many times denies that mercy which thou beggest, not as though he would not hear thee, but to see how thy heart will be drawn out towards him in prayer, to make thee more vehement and importunate in thy desires. Thus God was angry with the prayers of his people in Psalm 80, verse 4, that they might be more fervent. God doth not delay to hear our prayer, saith Ansel, because he hath no mind to give, but that our desires may be kindled, and so he may take occasion to give more plentifully. Fifth, God may deny a thing in mercy if thou didst too eagerly desire the mercy and too affectionately set thine heart upon it. If thou lovest it too much in the expedition, thou wilt be excessive in the fruition. Rachel had better wanted children, which she she so impetuously desired, for she had a child and died in childbed. God turns mercies too passionately desired into curses and snares to us, or else takes them away from us. And so I have answered this second question, and that is the third and last particular. I come now to the application. Use number one. 
Consider this, O all you wicked and ungodly men. Consider how far you are from having your prayers heard. What, will not a father hear his child when he hears when he prays to him coldly and remissly? And will he hear a slave? If God will not hear the remiss prayer of a godly man, dost thou think he will hear the prayers of a wicked man? If God will not hear his people's prayers at all times, notwithstanding they are in a state of friendship, will God hear thy prayers, O wicked man, that art in a state of enmity against him? If God will not hear the prayers of his own people, which are sometimes his delight, dost thou think he will hear thy prayers, which are always an abomination to him? Second, this should put an holy awe upon the hearts of all godly men. What though you are in a state of favor with God, though this will carry your souls to heaven, yet this will not bring you a return of your prayers. You must have your hearts rightly qualified before God will give a return of thy prayers. And thus much for the second doctrine and also for the negative condition. I come now to the condition positive to which returns of prayer are annexed. Though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. From which part of the text you may observe this doctrine that the people of God must not content themselves with being in a state of favor and friendship with God, but they must also labor after this holy importunity in prayer before they can have their prayer accepted. In the handling of this doctrine, I shall proceed in this method. First, I shall answer an objection that stands in the way. Second, I shall show what this importunity is. And third, at what times God works this in his people. Fourth, wherein lies the difference between an holy importunity and a natural importunity. Fifth, what are the reasons why the people of God must have this importunity in prayer? Sixth, how comes it to pass that so many want this holy importunity in their prayers? Seventh, what helps may be used to attain this fervency and importunity of spirit? And then I shall apply it by way of, of caution. First, I must answer an objection, which is this. Maybe some will say, what need is there that this condition should be so much pressed? What need is there of importunity in prayer? Hath not God decreed what mercy to bestow upon me? If so, then I am sure I shall have those mercies. Let me pray how I will. And on the contrary, if God hath not decreed to give me such a mercy, I shall not have them. Let me pray never so well. For the decree of God is effectual, irresistible, and cannot be altered. All mine importunity cannot alter the decree of God. For answer to this, I shall propound three things to your consideration. First, we have not to do to search into the secret will of God. We are to mind the revealed will of God and not the secret. It concerns us not to know what God will do, but what God would have us to do. Deuteronomy 29.29, secret things belong to God, but revealed things to us and to our children. We know not anything of the decree and counsel of God, but only as he is pleased to reveal it. Though God can give a mercy without prayer, yet he hath not anywhere promised to give it without prayer. Prayer is the means that God hath appointed us to use for the obtaining of mercy. 
Third, the decree of God must not make us to be remiss in prayer. For God hath decreed not only the end, but also the means. As God hath decreed to give thee mercy, so he hath also decreed that thou shouldest pray for it. And therefore, wheresoever the decree or purpose of God is mentioned, it is used as an argument to stir up the people of God to prayer. Second Samuel 27. For thou, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, hast revealed to thy servant, saying, I will build thee an house. Therefore hath thy servant found in his heart to pray this prayer unto thee. And now, O Lord God, thou art God, that God and thy words be true, and thou hast promised this goodness unto, the, unto thy servant. Therefore now, let it please thee to bless the house of thy servant, that it may continue forever before thee. For thou, O Lord, hast spoken it, and with thy blessing, let the house of thy servant be blessed forever. You see here, God hath purposed and promised to bless the house of David, and to continue it forever. Does this make David remiss in prayer? Does David argue, what need I pray for this mercy, seeing God has resolved to give it? No. David takes this hint and useth it to good purpose in his prayer. Another instance you have in Isaac. God had decreed and promised that the seed of Abraham should be multiplied as the stars of the heaven. Genesis 15.5 And that this promise, this promised should be, in a, be accomplished in Isaac. Did this make Isaac neglect prayer? No, for we read in Genesis 25.21 Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren and the Lord was entreated of him, etc. Though God had promised that in Isaac all the nations of the earth should be blessed, yet Isaac betakes himself to prayer to God for the accomplishment of that mercy that was decreed and promised. But you will say, suppose God hath decreed, he will not give me the mercy I pray for. What benefit is, is it for me to pray for it? I answer, first, it is more than any man doth know that God hath decreed he will deny the mercy thou askest. And second, if it be so that God hath decreed not to give thee the mercy thou prayest for, yet God will give thee the return of thy prayer unto, the, unto thy bosom. Though it may be he will not give thee the particular thing thou de- desirest. And thus I have dispatched the first thing. I have answered the objection. Second particular is this. What is this holy importunity? I answer in general, the word in the original signifies impudence or want of shame. It is a metaphor taken from beggars who are impudently importunate and take no denial. If you deny them once, they will ask you again and again and never leave till they get what they desire. It is a gathering together of all the affections of the soul, a stirring them all up in prayer, whereby the soul is so earnestly desirous after the good it wants that it will not rest nor leave off the duty until he do find some return. This is meant in Romans 12, 12, continuing instant in prayer. The original word is very emphatical. It notes not only to persevere, but to persevere and continue with utmost strength to engage all a man's possibility in the work. It notes instancy and importunity. It is a phrase borrowed from dogs that when they are hunting will not cease following the game until they have got it. So a godly man will pursue God in duty 
and never leave till he find the mercy he begs from him. Thus did holy Jacob, Genesis 32:26. God said, Let me go, for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go unless thou bless me. So it is said of Elias, James 5:17. He prayed earnestly. In the Greek, it is, in praying, he prayed. To show that a Christian, when he is praying, should yet pray. Should pray more earnestly. He should be, as it were, in agony in prayer. It was said of Austin in his preaching that he never left preaching till he found he had done some good upon the hearts of his hearers. So must you pray and continue praying, and do not give over till you find some good done upon your hearts till you find sin weakened and graces strengthened. This is the holy importunity that is here spoken of. And so much for the second particular. The third particular is this. When doth the Lord work in the hearts of his people this holy importunity? What seasons are they wherein the people of God are most importunate? I answer, first, God works this holy importunity in the hearts of his people at their first conversion. Then is the time when they are most earnest after God in duties. Austin tells us it was so in his time. First, converts were more, most fervent and affectionate towards God in duty when they were first brought from the state of nature into the state of grace. At the first taste of the excellency of grace, they are much ravished with it because of the newness of the conditions. New things do most affect men. Second, there is the most holy importunity in a man when he lives under the clearest apprehension and assurance of God's love in Christ. Psalm 42.4, When I remembered these things, I pour out my soul in me. When he remembered and considered the marks and tokens of God's grace in him and love to him, this made him importunate. A Christian may be compared to a marigold, which while the sun shines upon it, opens itself, but afterwards shuts. Christians, when the sun of God's favor shines upon them, their souls are enlarged, their affections inflamed towards God. But when God hides his face, they are troubled, their hearts are straightened, and they cannot pray as they used to do. It is said of the nightingale that when she thinks anyone is near, she sings more sweetly than when she is alone in the wood. The soul, when it sees that God is near it, and that his favor is towards it, then it sings most sweetly, then it prays most fervently. But when the love of God is clouded and the soul left as it were alone, then the affections flag and grow remiss in prayer. Third, another time when the people of God are importunate is when the time for the accomplishment of a promise grows near. This we find in Daniel, when he understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. Then he set his face to seek the Lord by prayer and supplication. Daniel prayed at other times, but, when he, but when, then he was most importunate. When the promise was near to the accomplishment, then he was most fervent. To the same purpose as that, Jeremiah 29:13. Then shall you call upon me, and you shall seek for me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your hearts. During the seventy years, the Jews did not express any holy importunity towards God, which is the reason of that expression you read in Daniel 9.13, Though all this evil has come upon us, 
yet made we not our prayer before the Lord our God, etc. But when the 70 years were come near to an end, the Jews prayed more the last year than they did all the 70 years before. Therefore said God, I know my thoughts that I have towards you, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall ye call upon me and shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. Therefore, when you see mercies for a family or a nation wanting, if thine heart be indifferent, that thou dost not care whether thou prayest or not, then you may conclude that mercy will be long before it comes. But if you find that God draws out thine heart for mercy, if God stir up thy desires and work this holy importunity in thine heart, it is an argument that mercy is near. For when prayer is in thine heart, mercy is at the door. Fourth, another time when the people of God are most importunate in prayer is when they are most drawn off from the world, when they are most free from the worldly distractions. The same word in the Hebrew signifies both meditation and prayer to show that when the heart hath been drawn off from the world by meditation, then it is in a fit posture for prayer. Fifth, another time is when they walk most closely with God. He that lives carelessly will not pray importunately. Therefore Job saith, If iniquity be in thine hands, put it away, so shalt thou lift up thine heart. Etc. To, to note that iniquity entertained and countenanced in the soul is the great hinderer of the lifting up of the heart, the great cooler of importunity. Sixth, another time is in deep and bitter afflictions. Then the people of God are most <clears throat> importunate in their prayers. Psalm 130, verse 1 and 2. Out of the deeps have I cried unto thee, Lord, hear the voice of my supplication. So Psalm 142, 1 and 2, I cried to the Lord with my voice. I poured out my complaint before him. I showed before him my trouble. So it is said of the Jews, Psalm 107, 6, they cried unto the Lord in their trouble. And the same words are repeated in verse 13, 19, and 28. When trouble and great distress was upon the Jews by Sennacherib, it is said that for this cause, Hezekiah the king and the prophet Isaiah the son of Amos prayed and cried to heaven. So it is said of Manasseh when he was in affliction, he besought the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly and prayed unto him, etc. So said that good woman, 1 Samuel 1.15, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit and have poured out my soul before the Lord. Thus it was with the whole church in Isaiah 26.9. With my soul have I desired thee in the night, yea, with my spirit within me will I seek thee early. For when thy judgments are abroad, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. And that is the last reason wherein the people of God used to be importunate with God in prayer. And so much for the third thing. This is the end of sermon number two. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. 
our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.